Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's talk... You know, cybersecurity, this is an issue that never goes away, and it seems like you can't spend your way out of the risk. Uh, it continues to be an issue, whether it's Russian hackers um, or just other uh, state agents. Matt Hayden, he's a VP of Government Tech Solutions, GovTech Solutions at Exiger. Exiger. Exiger, thank you very much. Former Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security for Cyber Infrastructure, Risk, and Resilience. Matt, give us a kind of a 30,000-foot view where let's call it corporate America, if not the global economy, where are we in terms of really dealing with cyber crime on a, on a kind of a global scale? Well, the, the negative side of things is that it's pretty bleak out there. You have a mix of criminal enterprises and nation state actors aggressively trying to take out or to capture private sector and government information. The good news is is that while it is a mess, it's not as bleak as it could be. A majority of all of these operations and campaigns against our U.S. companies are, are coming through ransomware and other techniques such as phishing emails to where there are ways we can get some of these protections in place to try and curb some of this and not at least be sitting ducks for a lot of this activity. And oh, by the way, welcome to National Critical Infrastructure Month coming right off Cybersecurity Information Month. So we're, wow. we're trying to hammer the public as best we can on all of this. They have a month for everything. Yep. Um, they do. They do. How important is uh, crypto in um, cybersecurity? Or how much of a problem is it in terms of you know crimes being committed? I know that most crimes still, by far, more than anything, are committed for dollars. But um, cyber has gained, crypto has gained a lot of attention in terms of cybercrime. Well, it became the currency of, of the day when it, with ransomware operators. Ransomware has been around for a very long time. This is not a new uh, approach to, to bugging and malwareing and challenging uh, workstations and servers and platforms alike. Where crypto came in is it allowed for those transactions, at least at, at the 10,000-foot level, to appear anonymous and to allow individuals to receive payment without the direct implications of, of law enforcement being hot on their heels. And so that has allowed for this expansion. And it also created a problem where these safe havens where law enforcement can't do direct actions, such as Russia and other locations, that are allowing this ransomware to spin up further and further in these criminal enterprises. So, Matt, how much, in terms of defense here, how much is it private versus public? In terms of, is it up to every company, entity, in and of itself to do it, or what can the government do? So, we, we use the term collective defense. Uh, that's not to say that it's on any one private sector partner to defend itself from a nation state. But it's also to say that no one private sector partner should just not have those core cyber elements taken care of so that they become a weapon in this battle as a, or, and a victim as opposed to being a part of this collective defense where everyone is starting to make sure they're not easy targets. So what we have right now is patch management. You know, if you're running software that has a vulnerability and there's a patch for it, put it on there. 
if you're not doing that, you're opening your door to being not just hacked, but to be used after you get hacked to go after somebody else. And so those, those supply chain attacks and everything else on the line all stem from we've got to at least have a baseline of cybersecurity so that the government can do those more advanced features where they have the offensive campaign to try and take out some of the bad guy networks, at the same time looking at what they can offer as far as domestic protection. All right, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Matt Hayden there is the VP of GovTech Solutions over at Exeter. He's also the former Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security for Cyber Infrastructure Risk and Resilience. So he knows what he's talking about, and they certainly do at Exeter. Thanks so much for joining us. This is Bloomberg. Now, as Paul said, we're going to get over to Avery Sheffield right now. Senior PM of Long Short Equity Hedge Fund Strategy at Rockefeller Asset Management. They have $12.5 billion under uh, under management. And let's talk first, Avery, about your outlook for the retailers. we got a lot of earnings coming up. And the consumer has been, I think, a really important part of, uh, of this recovery, as, as it is uh, the consumer is a huge part of the U.S., um, uh, economy, but we've seen consumer confidence come down lately, and that was a concern. It gave a lot of economists pause. Are they going to keep going out and spending money? Yeah, great, great question, uh, and, and that has certainly been uh, on on investors' minds because you know, as as we've seen a lot of uh, re- retailers report results, really starting with uh, you know the very strong results. Um, Q1, Q2 earnings, even as Q3 has come in, um, you know, many of the stocks actually are below their their peaks from the spring. With the, and that's really due to the fact that everyone's very concerned about how you're going to comp the comp, especially in Q1 uh, of next year, Q4 and Q1, when you know we we basically will fully lap the stimulus. And so, look, I'm probably maybe. I think that it's not going to be a, a universal um, situation where everything is going to do well or everything's not going to do well, certainly this quarter and next year. I think we're going to continue to see, um, you know, what we've had is the beginnings of a bifurcation of those um, those companies that sell things, sell items that were really under-purchased in, during COVID um, with apparel, accessories, shoes, et cetera, um, kind of topping the list of, of areas that have been underserved and, and have a real potential for upside. Um, and those categories, you know, that, that were really strong during COVID um, maybe going to be more bifurcated, right? Demand still looks to be strong for home improvement, but home furnishings is, 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 is pulling back. And I think that, you know, next year as we move more towards um, people purchasing experiences, those kind of larger ticket items are going to be more vulnerable. And if you're going to own the stocks of companies that sell those items, you really want to be very careful and focus on the winners versus probably in, you know, in the apparel. What do you mean, like cruises, like Disney, like uh, what what are you talking about? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of places where we expect people to be spending more, um, I mean, the theme parks are absolutely an area that we are very constructive on both near term and longer term. Um, the results we've already seen and, and the data points you can get from just looking at um, at, at, at uh, their, their reports, of, like their taxes to, to the various municipalities, um, very strong Sneaky. sales pricing yeah. power. I think they'll be able to more than offset labor costs. And that's a place where there are some stocks that are still quite cheap. You know, for us, the key is I mean, to find stocks that don't haven't already priced in a very strong recovery. And um, the theme parks are, are one area where we do think that there's there's real potential. Disney in particular has a large digital business, so it's not a pure play on, on this dynamic. See, I'm not sure about you might. I'm not sure if you're a cruiser or not. I'm not. 
What do you think of the cruise industry, Avery? That's one that just vexes me. I mean, I can't imagine getting back on a cruise. I ship. want to try it now. I've never done the big, yeah, I think, like a I know, now like an ocean cruise. You know? How but, do you think about that, Avery? Because those cruisers are hardcore people. Yes. Uh, you know, I actually haven't been on a cruise um, for many years, um, but really enjoyed it. And actually, my husband and I were just talking, I think, yesterday about potentially taking a, a cruise this summer. Uh, I think the demand for cruises is going to be off the charts um, next year and for the next several years. You know, from a stock perspective, it's a little harder because these companies have you know, diluted equity, taken on a lot of debt. Um, so if you look at the stock price chart, you know, you'd think, OK, everything gets better. It's, you know, the, the stocks have a double or a triple in them. I'm not sure they have a double or a, a, a triple um, just because of the, you know, the different capital structure. But I think that what the surprise really is going to be is the level of demand and the pricing power of these companies. And I wouldn't be surprised if their net incomes over the next few years actually exceed the pre-COVID net income, their pre-COVID net income. And that would probably suggest upside from these levels. Today. I think more people. People have heard about and thought about cruises because of the pandemic. Yes. And so many people at first yeah. were like, I'd never go on, you know, just a floating box of virus. <laughs> right. You know, on the other hand, people probably like you have given yep. it now more thought. Yep. And I will say it's not all about, you know, carnival in the Caribbean. You could do a Lindblad cruise up and down the Nile. You could go to Antarctica. You could go okay. to the Galapagos. So there's other stuff, a little bit more highbrow, more down <laughs> your alley, I'd say. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. So uh, certainly. Yeah, interesting. Avery, just real quick, e-commerce, the trends we saw, those are here to stay, right? I mean, they pulled three or four years of demand forward, but they're, they're, they're here to stay. I'm, I'm not really so sure, okay. actually. I, I know that this is very controversial, um, but I think they might have pulled forward more than the natural run rate of demand um, than we'll potentially ever see in, in certain sectors. I mean, what's really been fascinating to me about this year is seeing the declines off of last year's high and everyone's just focused on the two year. Um, But, you know, if e-commerce is the be all end all of shopping, you know, if everyone tried it, that would ever consider trying it in basically every category, if it's so great, um, universally, why aren't why isn't e-commerce up for most companies? You know, instead, we're absolutely right. seeing the opposite. I mean, even you know, one of the largest e-commerce companies in the world reported last yep. quarter. I mean, e-commerce was still up, but it was up actually only three percent yep. for, um, and that's globally for. Yep. for well, I'm going to. Yeah, I think I'll venture back into us. I think I'll back go back to the Short Hills Mall at some point. We'll see. All right, Avery Sheffield, Senior PM, Long Short Equity Hedge Fund Strategy at Rockefeller Asset Management. Let's get more serious now. Bill Smith joins us, National Director of Tax Technical Services at CBiz MHM's National Tax Office. If you tell somebody your job title in a bar, (laughs) Bill, uh, that your name is an easy one to remember, but your job title and the name of the company, you've got to give them a big card, I'm guessing. Well, you're the only person who's ever gotten all the way through it correctly, so kudos (laughs) to you. That's all I can say. Let's get to the... uh, to the tax provisions that we're watching here. And I don't know how seriously we have to take them since Joe Manchin doesn't seem to be playing ball. But what do you expect in terms of changes to the tax code? We'll start with the corporate tax code um, from the U.S. government. Oh, well, if if we can rely on the House Ways and Means write-up and the um, the framework that was released by the White House, there's some big changes and a lot of interest in what's not 
uh, included in the latest write-up. So we've got the swing back to the big alternative minimum tax for corporations. It went from $100 million in the campaign to $2 billion in the prior write-up down to $1 billion, and that's a 15% really alternative minimum tax for corporations with book profits uh, where where they are not paying any tax. Uh, Secondly, there is going to be an excise tax on redemption. So corporations, publicly traded corporations who buy back their stock in order to reduce the outstanding numbers are going to have to pay a surcharge on that with the intention that they want uh, the excess funds to be reinvested in what the corporation's core business is, not in trying to just buy their stock back. Um, There are a lot of other provisions, including limitations on certain interest expense deductions and losses, Uh, but those are the two big ones and sort of a hybrid between business and personal are the changes to the Section 1202 rules. That's the qualified small business stock where, depending on the time you bought it, if you bought the original issuance from a C corporation and it met certain parameters, you could exclude either 50 percent, 75 percent or 100 percent of the gain. That is now, if this goes through, that's going to be whittled back to remove the 100% and the 75%. So we'll be back to what was the original Section 1202 rules, which allowed. (laughs) There's a lot of like, let's get to the one that's near and dear to Matt's heart. Uh, It goes, no, it goes right to his wallet. The millionaire's surtax. A new surtax will place a 5% levy on incomes above $10 million. Is that a good idea? Is, Is that going to get done? Is that a good idea? I mean, well, I thought this was all written in stone because I didn't think that the president would have the press release and get the write up out of House Ways and Means the same day if he didn't have the votes. We now see that maybe he doesn't have the votes. But there's been so much back and forth on what will pay for the spend, which is down to half of what it was from three and a half trillion to 1.75, essentially, maybe 1.85 if you include the immigration. But that's in there as a big pay for for this particular bill. So if it goes through like we think it will, assuming they get Joe Manchin on board and uh, Kirsten Cinema, then that'll be in there. And you, you pegged it pretty accurately. This reminds me that uh, um, the Penn Wharton School looked at this uh, framework framework i guess is the word we're using 1.75 trillion but they've gotten there by cutting the number of years certain benefits run like the expand child tax credit and of course the democrats are hoping that just gets renewed later on so now penn is saying it could be actually a four trillion dollar cost and this is the kind of slippery slope that people like joe manchin and kirsten cinema may be worried about absolutely and that is in fact how they cut the number down so As you said, the hope is sort of like the Bush tax cuts when we would have extender legislation at the end of December every year. They're hoping that once it's on the books and people are used to it, so to speak, they'll get extended. And it's a little bit like when you do a reconciliation bill, which this is, and you're dealing with the 10-year budget window. You can't increase the deficit outside the 10-year window. What they did was say, we're just going to cut it back down to five years, essentially. That'll cut the spend down, and we'll hope it gets 
re-upped each time it's about to sunset. All right. lot lot of moving parts there for this framework. Bill Smith, National Director of Tax Technical Services for CBiz, MHM's National Tax Office, giving us the latest. Just get over now to Tom Stringfellow, who's Chief Investment Strategist at Argent Trust Company. They have $35 billion in assets under management. And Tom, we've been uh, talking for a long time about inflation, the market's concerns, but they seem to be um, continuing to 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 climb. And the idea that inflation was trans- transitory um, seems to be pushed further and further by the wayside. What do you expect from the Fed tomorrow? Well, I think they may uh, kind of redefine transitory. You know, it's kind of been interesting as we've been talking about this. And, uh, you know, halfway expected some nervousness to creep into the market, you know, whether it's uh, – Oh, it fell off uh, on the basis of uh, premise of inflation, and we've not seen that kind of sell-off. And, yeah, we've certainly not seen uh, investors rushing into gold. You know, looked at that a few minutes ago. And, you know, if I just look at two elements, uh, inflation and gold trying to price in, you know, some of the extreme inflation scenarios I've uh, heard about, it just hasn't happened. Tom, we're about 60% of the way through earnings for the S&P 500. Um very strong numbers. Are they strong enough to support the valuation in this market? Yeah. When you look at market multiples, I think things are still kind of stretched. I think we're still looking at a four, 12 month PE that's closer to about 21 times. So, you know, that's certainly pushing averages, but, you know, we're not out of a uh, liquid fuel market yet. You know, the, we've still got a lot of, uh, uh, balance sheet liquidity the Fed's put out there. Obviously, tapering is going to start changing that a little bit. But, yeah, I think the market takes over that uh, versus needing government support. And, you know, the earnings picture is certainly uh, driving the underlying support. Maybe it's raising the, the floor of support for uh, corporate earnings and valuations today. Because, you know, when I look at other asset classes, again, you know, what are our choices versus uh, cash and fixed income. So, you know, I could rationalize earnings growth as fueling the market drive this year. Go back a few years ago when we first had a, a real noticeable market uh, run. And, you know, it was uh, all of the premise of, you know, uh, and the actualization of tax rates moving up. So, you know, now we're in an uncertain picture of what taxes are looking like. But corporate uh, earnings are still solid. They'll trend down next year, but they'll still be positive. Investors, I think, are probably uh, basing their decisions on earnings visibility, which we actually have this year. But do you expect earnings? The beats have been getting smaller, or at least the the amount by which companies have been beating. Are is earnings growth slowing down as we get further away from you know March of 2020? Oh, absolutely. You know, I suspect that while they stay positive, you know, we're not going to see uh, you know quarterly annualized earnings growth numbers that are in the you know, plus or minus 30%. You know, that's, I think, kind of mathematically and ha- won't happen. And if it does, then what we're going to start really worrying about is, is the Fed, you know, starting to push rates a lot faster than, you know, what the premise is a couple of times this next year. But earnings beats will slow down. The percentage of growth will slow down. But we're still getting into a pretty robust you know, environment that, you know, assuming you can get rid of the logjam that's, you know, in the ports of L.A. and Long Beach, and that's not an overnight event. You know, I think we see kind of a trickle-through uh, earning sustainability as things come through, and, you know, this is probably a 
three to six month time frame. You know, it, hopefully, you know, everybody has a, a great Christmas and you know gets the toys under the uh, under the tree from the uh, truck that's sitting on the porch. But you know, I, I see things rolling out through next year, slowing down, but a sustainable rollout of goods which will support you know the demand that's still out there. We've not seen any real slowdown in in demand. What we've seen is a uh, uh, you know a, a pork fueled you know, kind of a, a surplus uh, uh, rundown. That doesn't that doesn't paint a, a, a bad picture for next year. It uh, we'll see more volatility as people are trying to come up with rationale for how long it's taking. But I don't yep. think it's, it's a long-term negative. Right. Hey, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Tom Stringfellow, Chief Investment Strategist at Argent Trust Company from San Antonio, Texas, home of USAA, the former home of Clear Channel Communications one time the largest radio operator back in the day, spent a lot of time in San Antonio. I believe it's the home of Greg Jarrett. Uh, Greg Jarrett's got... It's the uh, birth home. Sure. It's the birth home of Greg Jarrett. Yeah, I can't keep track. I, I need the book. I'm waiting for the book to come out. I mean, there's just so much going on with that guy. So we'll see here. But um, again, uh, Tom Stringfield, another one of those folks that says, you know, we're, we got a little bit more room left to go uh, in this market. I know that wall of worry out there uh, is definitely real, and there's a lot of meaningful bricks in that wall of worry, uh, whether it's inflation um, or the Fed or, you know, uh, some of these supply chain bottlenecks. Um, but uh, the stocks keep moving higher. And again, we've got green on the screen uh, here today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.